Well, hello. How's everyone doing? Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is late, September 27th, Wednesday, going into Thursday. And I just finished facepalming, watching the second Republican candidate presidential debate for 2024. And this is kind of the B team, let's be honest. The Orange God King, the Orange Mussolini, the Orange Man from Mar-a-Lago, the four times indicted four-year president Donald Trump was not there. And as we know, he has what, like a 50-point lead at this point? 45 if we're being generous. So all the other candidates there, not exactly exciting. But, you know, we had Doug Burgum, North Dakota governor, pulling at like 0.05%. Chris Christie at about 1%. Nikki Haley, about 5 Vivek, in some polls, passing Rob DeSanctimonious. Tim Scott on the stage, and Mike Pence. And, you know, I'll start with some of my takeaways, and then I kind of want to give a bit of a play-by-play and then give some more thoughts, and then at the end of the episode, I'll give you my ranking of the candidates 7-1. to (laughs) I guess I would start by saying in this debate, I actually learned more about the positions of each candidate than I have in previous debates. It was a little bit more raw, it was a little bit more direct, and I actually have to think that Fox Business actually did a better job of hosting this event than the first debate, which was Fox News. Viewership, I'm sure, was down, but that being said, they didn't start with rich men north of Richmond, they didn't ask all the candidates to reflect on a country song, they didn't get into UFOs halfway through it. It just did feel like the questions were more substantive, at least. But at the same time, I kind of saw this whole debate as basically rearranging chairs on the Titanic. What I mean here is that it's clear that the Republican Party is already sinking. The lifeboats are limited, and you have seven, seven candidates that still have the idea in their heads, I don't know if it's delusion or arrogance or maybe a mix of both, that all think that they can maybe be Trump. I think Donald Trump on Truth Social today probably defined this best. He said this was a job interview. It did kind of feel like that in a sense. But either way, they were rearranging chairs on the Titanic. Trump is a threat to the country. He is winning, winning, and winning. And he said, we're going to win so much, you're going to get sick of winning. And guys, I am sick of winning. And it just seems like these candidates just don't have what it takes. Anyways, uh, where do I start here? Actually, let's just start at the beginning. I am Like I said, I'm glad they didn't start with Richmond north of Richmond. That was good. But they did start with the UWA strike. And you guys are going to be very shocked to find out that a lot of them really struggled to answer the question directly. Instead, they just focused on Biden being, from my understanding, the first American president to go to the picket lines in support of labor. They focused on him failing the economy, focusing on the Green New Deal, 
woke economics, Bidenomics, inflation, and it's all his fault. But they couldn't actually really answer what they thought about the UWA strike. The debate starts with Tim Scott and Vivek the fake Ramaswamy. Tim Scott is asked about it, and he kind of deflects and blames. He, he uh, I think it was about a week ago, he was asked about his comments where he basically said he would be like Ronald Reagan and fire them all. And clearly Tim Scott came out with a very pro-business, anti-labor argument. So they asked him about it, and he deflected and blamed. And he said, these people want more benefits while working fewer hours. And that line really stood out to me because I don't think he understands the issue. The UWA, obviously, I, I do think Bidenomics has a little bit to play here. But also, it's more of a debate between right-to-work states versus union states. Right-to-work states pay their employees on average less. So as basically manufacturing is becoming cheaper and easier because EVs, for example, just have less parts, a lot of these people are saying, let's move to cheaper states to do it. So this is less of like Biden's fault. This is more of an issue of a kind of a stratification between right-to-work and non-right-to-work states. And Tim Scott doesn't really answer that. He also talks about how Biden should be at the southern border instead of the picket line. And then he gets into fentanyl and focuses on how we should be building the wall instead of focusing on the strike. Guys, we can eat, you know, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Very awful answer. Vivek then goes into a story about how he understands that prices are high and taking out loans are tough and he saw his parents struggle. I'll give Vivek the fake this one is that he does acknowledge that the workers have some grievances that make sense. I think Vivek, as much as I disdain him, and I'll get into later how much I disdained him even more after this whole debate, he at least acknowledges the workers. But it starts with that. Vivek basically says that he likes the spirit of what Tim Scott said and that he agrees with some of it, but then he gets into how hardship is not a choice victimhood is we have to be victorious and then he talks about picketing at the white house instead of picketing for this and then he says drill frack drain coal basically rescind on all climate related policies and then get rid of all federal regulations involving fossil fuels again vivek is just he's young inexperienced and he is just throwing shit at the wall seeing what sticks seeing what doesn't and it's getting kind of exhausting. Then Pence, of course, shows his unique situation. Obviously, he was part of the Trump presidency for four years. I don't know if you guys remember that. <laughs> he was a, a Trump ally until he decided not to go along with the big lie. And then he came to MAGA fame when his own supporters wanted to hang him on January 6th. But anyways, Pence was asked about the contradictions in his own rhetoric because he says... He sides with both the workers and big business. And then, of course, he gets into the same stuff as kind of what Vivek and Tim Scott were saying. Blame Biden. Biden shouldn't be at the picket lines. He belongs on the unemployment line, which was a really cringe line from Mike Pence. But Mike Pence had some cringier ones earlier where he talks about teachers unions and how he's been sleeping with a teacher for 30 plus years because his wife's a teacher. Not a lot of clapping or laughter on that one from the crowd, but... Basically, he blames the Green New Deal. He says it's good for Beijing, bad for Detroit. That was kind of Pence's main thing. And he supports right to work. 
Yeah, that was pretty much it. Mike Pence really coming across as just your typical like union-busting conservative. Not a lot of applause. This is interesting to me because I, I think the MAGA-slash-Trump base is kind of split on this one. I do think Trump brought in a lot of new union labor, kind of Bernie Sanders-adjacent adjacent people that maybe got kind of red-pilled during the pandemic. But then you also do have kind of the neocon evangelical types that also don't support labor movements. And Pence is really trying to walk a very fine line between those. And I don't particularly think it's working. Nikki Haley's asked. She says Biden showed up on the lines. But but then she's like, why are the people there, Biden? She also gets into, you know, how we need to eliminate the gas and diesel tax, which, by the way, I'm just going to kind of spoil one of my rankings. I think Nikki Haley, again, probably did the best in this, though she didn't stand out as much as the first debate. But at least when she had a criticism, she brought receipts. She brought an argument and it wasn't just red meat for the base. I would actually argue that eliminating gas and diesel taxes or at least changing how they are done is a policy agenda that I would maybe agree with. Not totally, but I would agree with because from what I understand, gas and diesel taxes are quite regressive taxes, meaning working class people, lower income people are the ones that usually end up being hurt by them more. That was why we lot. That was why we saw a lot of the yellow vest protests in France because of similar taxes. Is because the people that drive and commute and have to work are the ones that are paying higher taxes. So it's really not eliminating fossil fuels. It's just making it so working class people pay more, and those that can afford it kind of just brush it off. Then Nikki Haley's talking about this. Doug Burgum interrupts, and I will say, guys. Doug Burgum fascinates me. I don't agree with him on everything, but I will say he is probably the most ideologically consistent guy on the stage. I had a dream about two weeks ago that Doug Burgum and those big eye, big bushy eyebrows he has. I had a dream that he was the front runner. I, I remember. And after seeing him tonight, I don't think the country would be burning if he was the president of the United States. Again, I don't agree with everything he says, but he is ideologically consistent. He's a tech IT guy worth close to a billion dollars, North Dakota's governor. He's very into state rights. His pocket constitution seemed to bust him out, bring him into this second debate. And he's very anti-subsidizing EVs and helping China. And he's pretty strict on that. And he's consistent. So anyways, he interrupts Nikki Haley and... He brings up some interesting points about, and it's something I kind of agree with, basically that China is around the world mining earth minerals, and we are subsidizing our own electric vehicle industries, and China's the one with a lot of the raw materials that we need, so we're subsidizing the industry, and China is the one that's doing pretty well. And China's moving, and he said something to the effect of China's moving 100,000 pounds of earth so that we can make a car with a battery subsidized here. And he says this strike is at Joe Biden's feet. I actually think of the people, at least on this part of the debate, he's not entirely wrong. He's not totally right either. And there's a lot more nuance to it. But I do think there's a conversation to be had about where we're getting the minerals for these batteries and should we be subsidizing the industry in the way we are. So I'm not totally in disagreement with him. Finally, Chris Christie 
the Maverick, guns ablazing. He is, they then shift to the government shutdown. And Chris Christie, I think, I think Chris Christie, he hasn't impressed me as much as he should. Because I was hoping, maybe just because I despise Trump so much, that he would come out and just attack Trump and turn this into a roast of the Republicans. He had a lot of answers tonight that I wasn't crazy obsessed with, that I didn't completely love. But then I was thinking about it deeper, and I'm like, he just sounds like a Republican from 10, 15 years ago. And he just had answers that made more sense. I disagreed with some of them, but they were sane and at least nuanced, and they weren't just woke ideology like Rob DeSanctimonious talks about in a little bit. But basically, anyways, I'm I'm going, I'm going to go off on many rants, but Chris Christie is asked, if the government shuts down, who do we blame? And he kind of takes a both sides thing, but he's not totally wrong. He says we should blame everyone, right and left. And I should note that later on, he's asked about why we can't fix the migration crisis and why we can't secure the southern border. And he brings up a similar point. He's like, actually, since Reagan granted amnesty to like 3 million migrants, we actually haven't really done much since. And he's like, we actually can't really solve these issues right now because both parties are kind of complacent and we really can't have nice things when we actually are not willing to even debate and push forward policies. So Christie is actually willing to hold a mirror up to like why we're at where we're at. He doesn't provide any great policy solutions, but he does understand that like this is a complicated situation and the siren song of populism is not going to fix it. And again, he gets into how... Biden and Trump are both somewhat guilty of this. He says no one is willing to tell the truth. They just kick the can down the road. I do think that's true of our national debt, generally speaking. And he talks about how Joe Biden hides in his basement and now Trump is hiding behind the walls of his golf club inside of Mar-a-Lago instead of being there. And I mean, I wish more candidates brought this up, but it is true. And I mean, I don't know if this is actually going to hurt Trump not being at the debate, but it is true is that in a sense, a lot of the topics debated in this were versus the Biden administration versus the Trump administration. And it kind of sucks when Trump's running again and he doesn't even have the fucking balls to be at the debate talking about the issues. As Chris Christie said, he is hiding inside the walls of Mar-a-Lago. That's a fact, full stop. Anyways, so Christie makes the point, and I should note that by this point in the debate, we're only like 15 or 20 minutes in, I'd forgot about Rom. God, I can't even say his name now because Trump's totally skewed it. Ron DeSantis, who I call Rob DeSantis. Um, I forgot he was there. Again, he kind of melted into the wall or melted into the podium. For the guy that was supposed to beat Trump, won Florida victoriously, strongly, I forgot the guy even fucking existed. And so anyways, he finally gets his chance. The I guess you could say the front runner of the losers gets his chance. And ironically, everyone is talking over him, interrupting him, fighting amongst each other after what Chris Christie said. And I think it was a fitting introduction to Ron DeSantis into this debate that he doesn't even get the beginning of his own time because everyone else is arguing. And because he's kind of a beta, he's a beta male. For as much as he acts like an alpha male in Florida and doesn't let the weak and vulnerable have a voice you know, banning gay teachers from talking about their orientation in class and not teaching about slavery and history classes. 
he sure looks weak when he's on a stage with people with bigger personalities than him. And that's really telling to me. But anyways, he starts by saying the people in Washington are shutting down the American dream. His voice really is a voice for silent film. It's a voice you really don't want to hear too much or you'd rather maybe be deaf. But anyways, what I will say is, you know, he talks again about how the elites in Washington are not doing enough for the American people. Florida is not worried about a shutdown. But then he actually does say something, and he kind of seemed fired up. I mean, what does he have to lose? By the way, Casey DeSantis sitting right behind the debate moderators. By the way, she didn't look too thrilled, because as we know, she is the true person running his campaign. Some people argue that maybe they should just replace her with him because she is a TV personality. She, I don't think, I'm not a big fan of her either, but she must have more charisma than him. But anyways... Ron DeSantis does actually say Donald Trump is also missing in action tonight and should be here. Basically, he attacks Joe Biden for also not being able to defend the issues going on right now. But then he's like, Donald Trump is missing in action tonight and should be here. He should be here to defend his record because he's part of the problem in raising the debt. I thought that was kind of fascinating because as we know, DeSantis has kind of failed to actually step out and attack Trump because he really wants to pick up the pieces of Trump support if Trump ends up in prison, which obviously I've never thought's a thing. It's on the record. I've talked about this on the podcast before. But I think finally we're seeing him kind of realize that his campaign's in shambles. Like, bro, you got to stand up and speak. And it was not very charismatic. Again, he has the voice for silent film. And I should note that my mom told me while she was watching the debate that immediately she's like, I don't know why, but I don't like Ron DeSantis. And that was a common trend. And, you know, she is the voice of an American voter. And as we've seen in the polls, he has not particularly done well. That's why he's dropping. So I think it's interesting right off the bat. That was her um, her thoughts here. So then we do get good old Tim Scott coming back into it. And he he starts off with build back broker, which is Biden's thing. Again, another attack on Biden. Again, these people are running against Donald Trump right now. I know they're running against the incumbent and the opposition party. But right now, all these people need to make a case about why they're better than Trump, which they're not doing. But anyways... He puts out some interesting lines about how in South Carolina and his work as a senator, he did double down on the child tax credit, which is something that I think was great during COVID. And of course, House Republicans and Senate Republicans have tried to scale that back and they've successfully scaled that back. But what the, what the, child's ta- what the doubling of the child tax credit did was it helped parents get more resources to help their families. And much like the stimulus checks and other COVID-era bills that we saw passed, it made people just better off and not worrying about their finances as much. But again, he he gets interrupted by Vivek, who I don't even remember what Vivek said because Vivek basically says the same thing every time and they're word salads. But remember, he's young, he's good looking, and he speaks smart. But then again, they all start screaming over each other because what I noticed during this debate is they all are tired of Vivek. 
Vivek was bullied by the rest of them. I wrote this down. Let me see if I have it here. I think I put it. At, oh, yeah, I put it at the top. It, is that they basically realized that Vivek is a small outsider and they all just decided to pick on him. They were all treating him like he was a baby. And it was kind of funny to see. I'll get into more of it later. But then we get into the border and they play that clip of Ronald Reagan. And we have to remember that, well, there's another irony I guess I should mention, is that this all happens in Simi Valley at the Reagan Library, Presidential Library. And all these people are quoting Reagan left and right. But so many of these people are just antithetical to a lot of Reagan's policies, even though they like to say that they're the next Reagan. But anyways, so the moderators cut to this clip of President Reagan at the time. I'm thinking this is later Reagan era. And he called for early amnesty. He actually was the president and granted amnesty to nearly 3 million migrant workers. And he's one of the presidents that I think deserves a lot of credit for doing that. And then, I think it was Dana Perino, she asks the candidates about this. And I think she's pretty hard on Christie because Christie supported a path to citizenship, but then flipped in 2016. Again, as you guys know, I like Christie, but I find that he flips. 2016 was very telling, obviously. First, like, big-name guy to endorse Trump. Created a permission structure for Trump to get famous and become accepted by the establishment, blah, blah, blah. But then Christie, again, like I said earlier, highlights the fact that no one has done really anything about the migrant crisis since then. So he says, we don't really have the luxury to get creative or talk about this. And then he gets into how he is down to send the National Guard to the border, wants people to come legally, we must have a law and order agenda, that type of stuff. Now, the line of the night, or one of the lines of the night, though, Christie then attacks Trump's wall because I think he rightfully understands that the wall is just Swiss cheese. I think a good argument that Reason Magazine brings up a lot is that a lot of the drug trafficking actually comes from American citizens, legal American citizens that are involved in the illicit trafficking of drugs across the border because the border is Swiss cheese. But... Christie says, <laughs> I love this, if Mexico knew Trump was only going to build about 52 miles of the wall, maybe they would have paid for it. Genius. And yeah, I mean, they kind of get into this China, Mexico, back and forth. Haley jumps in then, and she says that if Congress can't keep the government open, they shouldn't get paid. One thing I noticed about this whole debate is that because it was so fast-paced, they each had a minute to respond, and they could respond if their name was mentioned. A lot of them were, like, answering the previous question or answering a previous attack while pretending to answer the current question. So it was a lot of grievance, actually, amongst the candidates as the debate went on because they didn't really have time to answer the question at hand because they were still angry about being called out over the last question. And so Haley focused her time mainly on talking about the shutdown. And I do agree with her that if Congress cannot keep the government open, maybe they also shouldn't get paid. Anyways, finally, Ron DeSantis reappears from the wall. He kind of melts back into reality or morphs back into reality. And he, again, is a big strength. He says Biden has done surrender over strength in regards to the growing influence of the Chinese Communist Party. And I think one of the more troubling lines of the night 
again, came from Ron DeSantis, who I do think is a very troubling individual and would be a very troubling president. He says that he wants to go after the cultural power of China in universities and states. Guys, this sounds like McCarthyism 2.0. Full stop. He says that he wants to rid Chinese culture from state institutions and universities. There's no way that that doesn't get xenophobic and toxic and racist really quickly. That sounds like, to me, the Red Scare leading to McCarthyism all over again, hunting out CCP loyalists, wherever they may be. And that eventually leads to just trying to rid Chinese culture and the Chinese people from institutions. And Ron DeSantis says that proudly. He doesn't get a lot of an applause, which was, I guess, kind of a, kind of a victory. But just getting cultural power out of China is fascinating. Like, I don't think anyone disagrees that China is a problem. I don't know many Democrats or Republicans that think China is like a great actor that we need to bolster. But him saying getting rid of Chinese cultural influence in universities and blah, blah, blah. I don't know how you do that without kind of a new McCarthyism. So then it, again, the transitions were not smooth at all. This debate was not smooth at all in transitions. But I think because they kept transitioning, when I say they, the moderators kept transitioning, it did really show these people. Because like I said, again, they're also responding to a previous attack while also trying to respond to the current theme. So then we get into birthright citizenship, and Vivek Ramaswamy, again, wants to end birthright citizenship, 14th Amendment background. I've done a podcast on it. After the end of slavery, the 14th Amendment was very important in granting for former slaves citizenship. And Vivek wants to end birthright citizenship for illegal immigrants. Tim Scott agrees. He differentiates it by saying that the 14th Amendment was designed for, for freed slaves, former slaves, not illegal immigrants. That is a conversation that I just do not have time to break down on this episode. I do have a previous episode from about two months ago, I want to say, on this topic, so you can check that out if you want more detail. But it is a complicated issue. Trump has also talked about banning that. I do think birthright citizenship, in a sense, has kind of become part of the American system we have. It would take a lot of work to get rid of that. I don't know if a single president could actually do it, but I, I, I couldn't help but understand where Tim Scott was coming from, though, when he did discuss how the 14th Amendment was designed for slavery and not illegal immigrants. And then Tim Scott, who, by the way, I think was more fired up tonight than last time, he was kind of the guy who opened the floodgates to just kind of eviscerating... Vivek Ramaswamy for the rest of the night. He basically said, because we have to remember, Vivek's always talking about the threat of China and jobs overseas, and we don't want to help Ukraine, we want to focus on China. And Tim Scott's like, I don't know how you say all of this. I don't know how you call all of us, other people on the stage, corrupt. When you were actually working with the CCP, you had apps and, and company subsidiaries in China, same ties to Hunter Biden donors, and then you're calling us corrupt. Vivek's like, well, I pulled out early. I pulled out in 2018. <laughs> Pence chimes in and basically says, good job, Vivek. You pulled out of China in 2018. You even did that before you started to vote because, by the way, Vivek did not vote until recently. And then he admits to opening up a subsidiary of his company in China. And then you kind of see everyone team up against him. 
By everyone, I mean the people that we know do not like him. Pence, Christie, apparently Tim Scott now also despises Vivek Ramaswamy, Nikki Haley. It was kind of a fun circus of chaos. They're all just basically like throwing middle fingers at Vivek, screaming. DeSantis then is asked about crime in cities. He brings up liberal elites, woke politics, and George Soros. Always productive. By the way, I was playing the Lincoln Project's bingo tonight, um, the Republican candidate bingo. About halfway through the debate, I had already pretty much filled up the card. George Soros was on the card. I was hoping DeSantis would bring it up, and he did. But again, it shows me that DeSantis is online. He's been red-pilled. To him, all of the protesters, George Floyd-era protesters, were all paid by George Soros. They were actors. You know, he, he doesn't actually have, to me, any good policies other than Florida good, the rest of the country woke, and Washington's elite. He's basically like a Joe Rogan podcast mixed with Alex Jones, mixed with, like, the Richmond North of Richmond song, mixed with the Tea Party. It gets exhausting. Nikki Haley follows Ron DeSantis up, and she actually, I don't agree with all, all of what she said, but she does bring up an answer on law enforcement that's not just blaming it on George Soros. She talks about how law enforcement does feel like they are the enemy of some city residents and how illegal weapons are always constantly a threat. And she also talks about how we need to defend law enforcement while also improve it. Again, like, she basically has kind of been purple-pilled, I guess I would say, where, like, she understands the right-wing talking points, and she kind of agrees with them, but she comes with receipts and at least is like, yeah, we need to bolster the police budget, we need to work on better policing, and also we need to talk about the illicit dealing of illegal weapons in big cities. We need, to, like, what I would have said is we need to talk about how Illinois, for example, Indiana's across the border, looser gun laws, they trickle across into Chicago, stuff like that. Interesting stuff. Moving on, they get into guns, and one of the moderators asks, I think a pretty good question. She says, mental health is not unique to the United States, but gun violence apparently related to mental health is an issue in the United States. An issue that I talk about a lot because, you know, I lived in Europe for a while and of course I experienced and saw and witnessed people with mental health issues, but you don't have the same weapons issues there. You don't have the same threat of gun violence. And it goes to Doug Burgum and of course he blames the left wrongfully trying to ban weapons and infringe on the Second Amendment. Again, he's being consistent because he's a constitutional Republican. I'll give him that. And then, of course, though, he deflects and talks about the core issues of family and mental health, deflecting from the question while he deflects. <laughs> he can't answer the question. And then Vivek comes in and says, building the wall is not enough. The border is porous. You can drive a truck under it. It's Swiss cheese. Because, again, he's responding to earlier stuff because the whole debate was kind of lackluster in that sense. DeSantis steps in, who, again, morphed out of the wall because... Again, he just disappears in these debates. And he says that the cartels will be treated like terrorists because apparently all the violence is because of the cartels. Again, I talked about on yesterday's podcast, they want to declare war on the cartels. So is that a call for an invasion? I don't know. But it kind of sounded like that. Then Mike Pence, I think, proposed one of the more troubling and just 
ineffective policies. And I actually think Mike Pence had an okay debate, even though I haven't mentioned him too much. But he said, basically, delayed justice is injustice. So if you've committed a mass shooting or if you've been involved in a shooting, death penalty. Full stop. He deflects from stopping the next mass shooting by saying we should punish the people that have already done them. I think all of us are for punishing the people that have already done them. I I don't think there's really much of a national debate on that issue. The national debate stems from how do you prevent the next mass shooting? And he has a pretty interesting idea. Basically, he wants to not regulate weapons because he doesn't even mention that. He just wants the death penalty for those that have already done it. I guess you scare future shooters by executing those that have already done it. It's definitely a theory and a concept. It's not one I particularly subscribe to. I don't think it'll work. Because again, as the original question asked, most countries have mental health, but also most countries don't have shootings. I don't think executing previous people that have done it is the answer. Then they get into just a convoluted healthcare debate for the next next part of this that just not smoothly goes from shootings to healthcare. And Dana Perino mentions that healthcare is lacking in Florida. Florida is below the national average. And DeSantis blames Biden, as always. He doesn't like nationalized healthcare. And I just kept asking myself, I wrote this down in my notes, I'm like, I didn't know that Joe Biden was the governor of Florida, for example. But DeSantis blames national health care and the Biden administration for not cooperating with him enough. No one really claps. And then he calls Florida a field of dreams. Interesting argument, for sure. Nikki Haley then recognizes the lack of transparency in health care, which I, I can def- definitely understand. I mean, she talks about how Healthcare providers, as well as the hospital, negotiate your bill without you even knowing what's going on, and then you get the bill in the mail and it's expensive. I have personal experience with this. I connect with that. <coughs> Excuse me. But, I mean, I like her idea of putting the patient in the driver's seat, transparency. But the Republicans have had over a decade now to fix it, and they haven't. Doug Burgum then comes in. And he blames this whole Obamacare rollout on software issues. Again, he's consistent. He's a tech guy and a constitutional conservative. He mixes both of those into that. And then we get into the fun part, which is education. And Ron DeSantis is called out by the moderators on the Florida education curriculum where they basically, I mean, I'm I'm not saying this verbatim, but they say that Slavery was bad, but slaves did develop some useful skills in resiliency. And he basically says, well, these were policies and this was a curriculum created by former or the descendants of former slaves. It's all good. It's all hunky-dory. We have American civics and the American Constitution in our schools. This is from the same guy who has allowed the Florida Board of Education to ban or at least fight against certain programs. We have PragerU going into schools. I did an episode on that like two months ago. And I don't know, PragerU is not what I think of with civics. And the American Constitution, I don't think is really in Florida schools. It's kind of a reimagining of the American Constitution in schools where 
teaching about the more unfortunate parts of our history kind of comes in contrast to American exceptionalism, and people like Ron DeSantis don't seem to like that. I think one of Tim Scott's better responses was to this. This was towards Ron DeSantis. He says there's no redeeming quality in slavery. And then this is Tim Scott's thing, is that I don't know if this is good or bad. Maybe it's just neutral, but he turns this whole thing into an optimistic message. And he talks about how black families survived slavery, made it through discrimination, and America's the best country in the world. And the best path forward is restoring the family, family values, and restoring capitalism. I don't know if I'm totally on board with all of what he said there. He has this very just optimistic message, and I think that happens when you're someone that saw poverty and discrimination and came from a marginalized community and you got out. And I I can, in a sense, respect him for that, but he just has this message of kind of like, everything's fine now, which I don't particularly agree with. And then, of course, you guys will not be surprised to hear that this conversation about that turned into Vivek talking about trans issues. And they all kind of doubled down on gender reaffirming care and how old you should be to be able to do it. I, from everything I've read, guys, I don't think it's like a 12-year-old can just say, I want gender affirming care. I'm not going to tell my parents and the state is just going to let me go through the whole process without anything. I just don't think that's a thing, but the Republicans all seem to think that. They seem to think that it's like parents are kept in the dark, parents don't have a say, and their kids can all of a sudden go through gender-reaffirming care and basically transition without their parents knowing while they're underaged. And I think that is another just scare that's going on in our population. Vivek, again, he's just so annoying. He says the whole thing is just confusion and mental health and there are no transgender people. It's just a, a scare and it's just a phenomenon happening. He said it's just not compassionate to support a kid's confusion. I just don't think that's really the issue. Now, Doug Burgum steps in, getting us back to policy a little bit. He has an interesting policy that he's done in North Dakota that I will admittedly say at this time I don't know a whole lot about, but I want to dig more into. And he talks about his K-12 through coordinating council, where he fights teachers' unions but also works with them at the same time. Chris Christie also kind of has a similar thing where teachers' unions are going to be there to stay. You have to fight them. It was better than some of the other stuff. And back to Doug Burgum, though. Being consistent, again, I I do think he is consistent. That is kind of his story. He talks about how states are good laboratories for educational experiments and change. And this is something I've talked about on the podcast, is I think part of our federalist system is that we can see different states do different things and the outcomes can vary. And Doug Burgum seems to subscribe to that theory as well, and I do kind of like that. Now, the funny thing is, is so Chris Christie was attacking teachers' unions and teachers and all this stuff. And Mike Pence tries to put out a joke. I don't think it really landed well, but he admits to sleeping with a teacher for 30 years. Again, that's his wife, who was a teacher. Then we get into Vivek interrupting. 
And <laughs> I love this. Vivek get, tries to get into this again while Nikki Haley's trying to respond to the education stuff. And Nikki Haley says, every time I hear you, I feel a bit dumber after what you say, which I think speaks for a lot of us in this. And she says, we can't trust you. And then she goes back to his China connection, which by the way, Vivek is not doing well in the polls. After the first debate, a lot of voters and polling groups have called him annoying. And I think a lot of the other candidates have kind of picked up on that and have just decided to roll with that. It's kind of fun. And then Vivek tries to scream over her and the moderators threaten to cut his mic. Now, for the remaining part of this, Ukraine comes up again. And as you guys know, I talk a lot about Ukraine. I think it's an important issue, something worth talking about. And I think there were some really telling points on this. Ron DeSantis came back from the wall. And of course, he said what I assumed, assumed him to say. He said, it is not our interest to be involved in this war. He said, it's in our interest to end this war. And... You know, I got to give Tim Scott a lot of props on his response to this because he was the next guy to speak. And he actually explained something that I don't think a lot of Americans understand. It's something that I will admittedly say that I don't even fully understand. But we have to remember Tim Scott, for what you think about him, left or right, center, north, pink or orange, whatever, he says the money we send to Ukraine is a loan. 90% of it is a form of a loan that's paid by our NATO allies. It's also a minuscule amount of our budget, and we're mainly sending them older weapons. He then goes on to argue that it's worth it. And he then goes into the argument that I've been telling you guys on the podcast for quite some time. We keep our homeland safe by keeping our allies safe. And, you know, there, there is something kind of irritating about what Tim Scott said, though, is because he's so focused on Mexico and the cartels and the border but then he, there's a sensible bone in him where he's like, guys, this is a big deal. They're, they're not going to stop in Ukraine. If we give Putin eastern Ukraine, we give him the Donbass and Crimea, for example, Donetsk, then it's Poland next. It's, it's Moldova, or at least Transnistria. And he says our homeland is safe when we, when we protect our allies. And also NATO is a pretty robust alliance. And <laughs> Vivek, of course, tries to interrupt. And then Tim Scott looks at Vivek directly in the eyes and says, bro, wait your turn. Be an adult. Great. Now, Vivek, I think, has the worst take of the night, which probably won't surprise you guys if you know my thoughts on Vivek. But also, he said it in the debate. He said this verbatim this time. He said, just because Putin is evil doesn't mean Ukraine is good. That is like... That is like 1930s American isolationist talk. It really is. It's like, okay, France and the UK, Belgium, Poland, Russia, they're all warning about this, like, Nazi threat. Hitler seems crazy, but, like, what about the other countries? I mean, they have issues, too. Then Pence interrupts and says, I think, what all of us were thinking. He's like, hey, man. You hand Ukraine to Russia, it's a green light to China to take Taiwan. And then he gets into a whole thing about how, like, this is all intertwined. <laughs> Haley just glares at Vivek, who I, I, I do start to question, like, what he actually means in any of this stuff. And then Christie's fired up. 
I love it when Christie's fired up. He gets that New Jersey flair. And he brings up probably the most astute point, talking about how Iran, China, Russia, North Korea, this is the new axis of evil and they're all connected. He says the Chinese are paying for the Russian war in Ukraine. They're helping subsidize it. They're buying Russian goods with the sanctions. The Iranians are helping test out the drones and the other weapons. And now North Korea is also a donor on this. And they're also sharing technology with Russia. He says they are all connected. And then he actually, again, Chris Christie kind of, I think his goal of this was to hold a mirror to everything. Because because then he talks about how even though the Chinese-Russian alliance must be stopped, Putin wants to put the old band back together and every president from Bush to Obama to Trump to Biden has not been good at dealing with this. And I full-heartedly agree with that. I full-heartedly agree with that. And I think Chris Christie is really good at just acknowledging those things. But again, I guess my criticism of that same thing I agree with would be that this is a Republican debate. You're running against Trump. You're not running against Joe Biden. Save that for the debate. But then again, does Biden even debate whoever comes out of this, which is presumably Trump? I don't know. But it, it does seem to me like Putin wants to put the band back together. Ramaswamy doesn't understand foreign policy enough. He read a bunch of books, watched some YouTube videos, and now he's pointing his fingers and acting like Trump on stage, telling Nikki Haley, excuse me, you guys are all corrupt elites. It's kind of insane to me. Now, there was a great quote from Dana Perino that I just wanted to highlight too because they go from Ukraine into national security. And she, you know, she talks about how prior to 9-11, no one was really expecting that. And... The quote she says, which is something I would really like to put up on my wall or something, because it really stuck with me. She says, the further we are from, from September 11th, the closer we are to September 10th. And she asked the candidates how they're ready for another national crisis. Of course, the problem with this debate is not many of them can respond. Tim Scott is able to respond and talks about his experience in the Senate and I would just tell you guys, like, he would get my stamp of approval for dealing with something like this because he does call out the intelligence sharing before 9-11, how we had the information, but we were not prepared and not sharing it, and we were siloized as, a, as governmental organizations on the federal level. Pence gets into the idea of the siren song of populism, which to me kind of pains me to hear coming from him, mainly because this is the guy that sat along, well, this is the guy that was allured by the siren song of populism for four years. He sat behind Trump, loved everything Trump did, and now he's calling it out. For me, Mike Pence, he's kind of the worst of both worlds. And I think that's why he will never be president is because He's now calling out the siren song of populism, but he sat behind it for four years. And so then he finally did the right thing, so he pissed off the populist MAGA people. But also the people like me are hesitant about him because his moral character has been blemished. And I, I guess you could say the same about a lot of these people, is they, they are now speaking out, but it's like, you guys saw this. I'll, you guys aren't stupid. You've been following this. I know that if I've been following this and covering it, you guys probably have too. And yeah, 
Ron DeSantis kind of ends the debate. He said something again that was, again, he morphed out of the wall. And he, was, he said one of the last things before the debate was over. And it was something kind of troubling to me. He said that like he can be president and win on a national level. He admits that Trump lost. Just He didn't directly say it, but he said we lost the last three popular votes and the last election. But he's like, you know, the red wave didn't work in 2022's midterms, but it did work in Florida, which, which it did for his defense. Like the Republican Party did great in Florida in 2022's midterms. Of course, he went against Charlie Crist, who is just a shape-shifting neocon posing as a Democrat. But then DeSantis said, the Democratic Party lies in ruins, and Florida's an example of how to beat them. There's a really good piece by Tom Nichols in The Atlantic from yesterday that talks about how any successful country needs opposition parties to one another, healthy parties that can serve as a balance between the right and the left, help people get their voices heard. And he talks about how the Republican Party is corrupt, broken, and it's a shell of itself, and the United States needs a healthy Republican Party. Well, I would say on the flip of that, Florida needs a healthy Democratic Party. And DeSantis is almost celebrating the fact that the Democratic Party doesn't exist or is at least very broken down in Florida, which it is. And it's from reports I've read, it is doing better in, you know, grassroots activism and local activism is doing well in counties. But DeSantis seems to relish in the fact that it's good to have a broken party and a one-state rule, and I do not like that. The last thing I'll say here, at least in my debate recap, is that I found out at the end of the debate that it was only Ron DeSantis that had his debate translated into Spanish. I guess it makes sense when you think about how Florida has such a Latino vote. Cubans and Venezuelans, Puerto Ricans, just to name a few, Dominicans. But I'm surprised not more Republicans are reaching out. But when they said that at the end of the debate, that only DeSantis had his debate translated into Spanish, it then hyper-focused on Mike Pence. And I'm like, yeah, (laughs) I don't know if Mike Pence needs to focus too much on the Latino vote. I don't think he's going to get it. But... That was probably the only thing I would give DeSantis props on in this entire debate is that his campaign is trying to get the Latino vote. I don't, well, they might get it in Florida. Nothing would surprise me. But the side note I'll also add is that Tim Scott and Nikki Haley kind of were at each other about like accepting Obama era grants and federal subsidies. And it came up earlier in the debate, and then at the end of the debate, they got in each other's faces again. Vivek, of course, tried to interrupt, and Tim Scott told him to shut the fuck up. <laughs> that, that type of thing. So it was really interesting. It was a really interesting debate. Just a few more, I guess, thoughts I have. Is that, yeah, these are my just key takeaways. Pence disappeared a lot and then reappeared. But he did seem presidential. I also did notice that Nikki Haley received a lot more claps than other people. The crowd seemed to like her much more than others. I would also add that all of the candidates 
I can't name one that was in the opposition to this. All of the candidates have a major hard-on for fossil fuels. And I've talked about this on the podcast. I think there's a fine line between embracing clean, renewable energy and also keeping our reserves of fossil fuels alive and ready. I think that's a conversation to be had. But a lot of these people have just completely disregarded renewables. I should also add, I totally forgot about this because it was at the bottom of my notes, but the most kind of like wow moment was that they came back from a commercial break in the last bit of the, excuse me, the last bit of the debate. And Dana Perino's like, one of you is off the island. You guys all have to write on a piece of paper who it would be. You all have a pen and a paper with you. None of them wanted to do it except for Chris Christie. I think you can assume who he wrote down. It was Donald Trump. They all got in a screaming match again. That's where Nikki Haley and Tim Scott got back into their own screaming match about federal subsidies and grants. But it was interesting that I think this was a roundabout way that Dana Perino was hoping they would all write down Donald Trump as the one person who should go away. You're you're not running for president. You're stepping down. None of them wanted to do it because they're all cowards. Chris Christie wrote down Donald Trump. That's where the party is. A lot of smart people that are afraid of their shadow, and the shadow is Trump's populism. And you know what? Pence warned about the siren song of populism. Even though he touted Trump's record for years, even during the debate, he touted his, he touted his record as vice president, who is you know Trump's record as a populist. But I think the siren song of populism is concerning, and I don't think any of these people are quite ready to deal with it. So before we're out of here, let's do my ranking, 7 to 1. Here we go. Number 7, Vivek Ramaswamy. Yeah, I think he did poorly in this. His talking points haven't changed, and after the first debate and focus groups talking about how he's annoying, the candidates turned on him, and once he's cornered, he becomes quite prickly and even more unlikable and more annoying. And he shows me he would not be a good president. I do. I would not like to see the country under Vivek. And I will bet you that the showing in this will not help him. Number six is Mike Pence. Mike Pence, like I said, he would appear and disappear. He seemed presidential at times. But, you know, he warns about the siren song of populism but then throughout the debate touts his record, which was mainly what he touted was his record with Donald Trump while he sat behind a MAGA populist. And it's just hard for me and probably a lot of voters to see past that. Number five, Doug Burgum. Like I said off the bat, he's consistent. I can't walk away from this not liking him. I kind of like him. He's kind of funny. Like I said, I had that dream a couple weeks ago that he was the front runner. If he was the front runner, he would not keep me up at night. This is just an old school. Literally, he looks like he was photoshopped into a Reagan campaign ad. He feels like that, and that's what the debate felt like. But he didn't hurt himself playing pickup basketball before the debate this time, and he wasn't on painkillers. And he came off kind of likable and consistent, and also he had his talking points. And I think he's kind of right about 
how we are accelerating government policies towards just reshaping our economy for the better, but sometimes the road of good intentions is not always easily paved. Um, Four is Chris Christie. Chris Christie has underperformed in these debates. I think a lot of us were hoping that he would come out and just be guns a-blazing, chaos havoc. He's not going to win, and I, I was just hoping he would be a little bit more chaotic in his responses. Again, I do think he holds a mirror up. He had some good zingers, like Trump built like 100 miles of the wall. If Mexico had known that at the time, maybe they would have paid for it. I think that's clever. I think he's more nuanced. But he's not going anywhere, and he didn't really shine to me. Number three is Tim Scott. I think this was a good debate for Tim Scott. Tim Scott, to me, is one of the least bad options. And he came across that tonight. He pushed back on DeSantis, said that there's never a good side of slavery. There's nothing redeemable about what happened. We can't whitewash our history. My issue with him is that he is on a stage with people that have the brain worm. And so he kind of has to at least like take a bite out of that worm and let it kind of at least get somewhat up towards his uh, brain. And sometimes he's sane and sometimes he just uses talking points. And I've always had a soft spot for Tim Scott. I quite like him as a senator. I think he's better as a senator. But I think he learned a lot from the first debate more than others. And he did have a lot of time tonight. Now, I don't think fighting with Nikki Haley was the best thing, even though their interactions towards the end of the debate between one another, I think were an actual debate. And I mean, in my perfect world, it would be Nikki and Scott running mates. I don't really care who's president or VP, but that would be my ticket. Number two, I actually have to say is DeSantis. Not because he particularly was a big presence, but because he got his talking points out, and when he did, the crowd clapped. This is purely out of response. I don't like DeSantis. I would never even consider even considering him to be president. But he he's not charismatic. He's not a good public speaker. But he managed to deal with his weaknesses, and at least when he did have some zingers, the crowd clapped. Again, he is too online. He's too red-pilled. Again, DeSantis five years ago, I think, could have been a very formidable candidate. That's not him now, and it's very clear. But tonight was much better than his first debate. It's a complicated issue he has now. Like, does he keep running? Does he wait till Iowa? Does, are, are there donors that say, hey, man, like, you could be a candidate down the road, but if you keep going, it's going to just, just diminish your chances. I don't really know. He's a really complex one to me, a really interesting case study in our current political climate. Number one, again, Nikki Haley. I found myself agreeing with her more than disagreeing with her. I don't like her wanting to do targeted attacks on cartels. I think that was a very dark point of everything she was saying. But I noticed just from a visual and audio sense of the debate, the crowd responded to her more than others. She's the most prepared. I think she has some of the best experience on the stage. And I don't think she's crazy. And I don't think voters think she's crazy either. I've noticed that Trump has attacked a lot of the other candidates. He's attacked Pence a lot, Christie, Tim Scott, DeSantis. He's attacked her a little bit. But the, the longer this goes, I think Trump, if he becomes the presumptive nominee, 
he either goes like Christy Nome, who I do think is a very big front runner for his VP, or I wonder if he tries to moderate his image for the general election goes with Nikki Haley as VP. I don't know if she'd accept it, but to me, she comes off as measured, reasonable, and kind of the adult in the room. And she's really good at these debates. And I think we also have to remember that being the only woman on a stage full of arrogant men that all think they should be president, it's really tough. It's really tough. I've talked to some women close to me in my life, and they they all have applauded her just for her ability to be able to stand up and do that. So I, I, I again think that Nikki Haley comes out of this as as at least the best of the bottom barrel. And I hate to say it like that because, like I said, in the perfect world, my ticket would be Nikki and Scott. It really would be. But again, you know, all of this, I guess, is a mood point because Trump's killing them all in the polls. So anyways, it was an interesting debate. I actually think it was more telling on some policies in the first debate. Let's get out of here. I got a long day tomorrow. It's late. Have a great night. Let me know your thoughts. I'm sure I will have more commentary down the road. I'm curious who remains. By the way, just a fun side note, Gavin Newsom was at the debate. I didn't watch it yet. I'll probably watch it before I go to bed or tomorrow morning. Um, Sean Hannity interviews him. I kind of applaud him and Sean Hannity's respect for each other in these times and with the division of media and politics. I kind of like that they at least have enough respect for each other. But that I, that's a whole other diatribe. So anyways, have a great night. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Have a great night. I'll be the same.